Hey guys, Andrew Baxter here and welcome to this week's Money and Investing Podcast. This week you're in for an absolute treat. Something a little bit different, we've got a guest on and not just any guest, one of the most notorious traders uh, that uh, you would see in global markets, particularly through the 1990s. It is one heck of a story you're about to hear, but more importantly, the nuances, the lessons that someone takes away from the experience that they've had. This guy grabbed headlines around the world for his actions. It's going to be a revelation when you hear what his single piece of advice is to anybody that's a would-be trader. Take plenty of notes, dial in. I know you're going to love this uh, interview. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are in for an absolute treat. Just to give you a little bit of backstory on here, today we are going back to the mid-1990s and indeed the UK and Far East. We're going to explore some major experiences, learnings, breakthroughs, and ultimately the salvation of one man's journey through financial markets. From one of the most famous traders in the world, not necessarily for the right reasons, his unauthorized trades on the Symex Exchange in Singapore culminating in the, uh, the bankrupting of the UK's oldest bank, threatened stability of London as the world's financial centre and ultimately resulted in losses exceeding a billion pounds. This is a big story. There are massive learning points in this and huge positive takeaways to take. It's not often that you have a guest whose reputation precedes him as much as my guest today, an author, subject of a fantastic movie, and arguably one of the most infamous traders of our generation, former Bearings Bank floor trader and the original rogue trader, Mr. Nick Leeson, welcome to the show, Nick. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Andrew. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. To be honest, I I kind of get a, got a little bit nostalgic there with the introduction, and I think it probably made probably made me sound a little bit better than I than I probably am. But we'll, we'll see where that goes. To be honest. Well, well, it's interesting talking of nostalgia. I mean, let's take this right back to, to grassroots. And if we if we talk about the UK and specifically the city of London in the early 1990s, we're all basking in Margaret Thatcher's deregulation, the Big Bang, um, and, and, and so on that was going on in London. Um, what uh, what was it that drew your attention to want to work in the city in the first place? You know, you're a working class lad. Um, what was it that made you want to get into the city? Look, I always had a huge desire for success, and uh, like the city was never my first choice. I, I, when I was at school doing my A levels, kind of law was the thing that I was, I was probably gravitating a little bit more towards, and ultimately I probably spent too much in the too much time in the legal system as well. But um, I kind of, I kind of got into the world of, of banking by mistake, I think, in in, in the beginning. Um, a lot of people who went to the school that I went to were applying for a job at, at Coots and Company, which is mm -hmm. the Queen's Bank in the UK. Um, so I applied, um, wasn't really too bothered about it, and, and, and out of maybe 50 people applied, I was uh, one of two that were offered a job. Um, so I started work in 15 Lombard Street. And, and and kind of grew into it from there, you know. Like as you said, it was um, it, it it was the Big Bang era, all of that deregulation going on. So, you know, it was. Um, I, I mean, and you know this uh, because you were there as well. It was a it, it was a land of opportunity, a huge opportunity. And the more that you were in the industry, the more that you saw that the you know people were changing jobs. Um, 
very often. Um, you know, you, you might work somewhere for six months or 12 months and somebody else will be looking for somebody else in that t- type of role, offering a bit more money. Mm. So there was huge opportunity at that time. And, you know, if like w- whenever I'm asked on uh, on to speak at different events or whatever, um, you know, people often ask what was the changing point for the financial markets. And, and I think Big Bang was a huge one because it went from being stockbrokers and, a personal liability to um, to make sure that everything was under control to almost through the Big Bang era and big banks or more big banks coming into the city of London, it, it, it changed to other people's money and, you know, be that shareholders um, of, of the institutions. And I think that was a, for me, you know, looking back on it, that was a seminal change in um, the financial markets. So, so within that, and I mean, you know, as I say, you're a working class lad like myself and, and, and London changed massively from being the old school tie network to being incredibly opportunistic in that era. What was the draw for being a trader? Was it to be the to be the alpha predator in that sector? Tell us about the transition from sort of being in financial services to, to being on the floor and wanting to be a trader. What was the, the real driver for that? Yeah, I think I think you've got it. I mean, I mean, I think it was the alpha male type of thing. For me, it was you know the thing that really drove me. It wasn't money. Um, I think there's a certain amount of status uh, that runs through everything that I did um, over over my banking career, if you like, albeit quite a short one. So um, I think status is very prevalent in 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 the city and and, and getting to where you can do. Do within the um, um, with, within the opportunities that are that are there, and you know, for me, there were no limitations, right? So, you know, trading was the thing that everybody was drawn to because it was, you know, the the number one opportunity within the um, within the banks and within the organisations that you worked for at the time. You know, the people making the tough decisions on a daily basis, and it was that almost gladiatorial um, type of, (laughs) but but it was, and and you know yourself from working on the floor, some of that's quite physical, but it is that, you know, like I'm top of the tree type of mentality and it, and it draws a certain type of individual towards it. Um, I suppose with that personality type of, um, I'm not going to say ego because that's probably not the right word, but, as as someone that's recognition driven to 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 really want to be at the very very top top of that tree, and, and one of the interesting things, Nick. I mean, obviously, an enormous amount has has changed. And when we we talk about our, our clients, you know, in the trading ecosystem that we're in, you know, you think about order placing now on on any market globally is literally a couple of clicks on a computer screen, and you are live in the market and doing it. And you kind of turn the clock back to. The order process back then, now in London, it would have been, I guess, the client calls the sales broker, the sales broker calls the booth, the booth write the order down, the runner takes it out to the pit, the trader fills it, and then reverse the process. Was that something that was quite similar in Singapore at Simex? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the the other part that you've got of it, which is is probably missed out a little bit, is you probably had some salespeople in the office as well who are, mm. who are calling the client to try and interest them in the trade, be that an equity yeah. trade, be that some sort of option strategy that you're putting together. So, you know, in, in Japan, um, you know, predominantly the, the trading that I did in Singapore was Nikkei 225. So you'd have the two sides of the business, you know, the two sides of the business that should never talk behind those <laughs> uh, behind those Chinese walls that either did or didn't exist. So you had the sales, 
you had the sales team who would be talking directly to clients, and then you had the, you know, the prop traders, the arbitrage traders, or whatever they were, um, you know, placing orders um, for for the house, if you like, or, mm-hmm. or for the bank. Um, so there were two types of people, and those two types of orders would both come into the trading floor um, and, and be executed in the manner that you say. So you know, I think people people look back at it now, and we talk about runners picking up tickets and running them around, and it's just alien when everything is at the uh, is at the click of a finger these days. And, it's uh, crazy, and I guess from that perspective, with so many moving parts in that old process, you know, there's a tremendous risk of errors which i guess in an open outcry system is a, is, a, is an everyday fact of life so let's let's talk a bit about the errors account let's get to the the, the meat and the sandwich the five eights account how did that come about tell us a bit about you know the early days with that and and, and maybe some of the early trades that were booked there yeah well it, i mean it started out just purely as an error account really um and and as you've said you know you're in an open outcry market with you know, maybe 150, 200 people in a Nikkei 225 pit, everybody, you know, the eye line is, um, you know, you think your eye line is one particular way, but there might be two or three people that you could be connecting with. So you do get errors and there can be price discrepancies, there can be lot discrepancies, there can be people discrepancies. So that that was the purpose of the runners to get those tickets around as quickly as possible, get them into get them into the clearing machines um, and, and then work out if there were any discrepancies. So the error account initially was to um, to resolve those discrepancies. Um, and, you know, the, the ultimate um, way that you resolve them is if you couldn't agree daily on the pit, in the pit would be then to go and report the issue to, to the exchange and go and view cameras and see exactly what went on. But, mm. you, you know, the, the, the basic rule of thumb and, would have been the same on life as well is that you target matching trades within a 30 minute period yeah um, so now it's everything's instant and you've got your you've got your feel you know that there was a 30 minute window where you could um that there could be some sort of negotiation about it as well right. so um, was agreement over a beer and we're all squared away so so, 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 to, so to, to that point nick um, yeah, that's how it started. A couple of maybe errors. Covering for your team, I think, was one of the stories, which is pretty altruistic. So all of this came about through, uh, you know, covering up for, for a mistake by one of your team members. Is that right? Yeah. So we, um, the, the Nikkei 225 in Singapore was uh, didn't have great volume. I think when I arrived in Singapore, it was trading 2,000 contracts a day. Um, wasn't um, pulling up any trees. So um, what happened in Japan is a lot of circuit breakers started to kick in when the Nikkei 225 started to plummet and move, mm-hmm. and move lower. It was trading around 39,000 when I was first in Singapore. Mm-hmm. Um, so the circuit breakers were kicking in in Japan. All the business shifted to Singapore instantly. Um, you know, overnight would be um, would be kind, but it was really instant. As soon as uh, as soon as the Nikkei two two five went limit down for the day, which it did uh, quite regularly, I think it was a seven hundred point movement at that mm. particular time. All of the business would come into Singapore, so you've got a, an exchange that's used to doing two thousand contracts a day. Instantly, is trading twenty thousand. <laughs> you know, no, no, nobody's nobody's ready. Nobody's ready. There's not enough people. Um, so you start to, and, and the way the industry was at the time is you recruit wherever you can. So you look to recruit from other brokers. You look to recruit from other people, uh, you know, um, the, the, the runners that might be on the floor. Then you look at the compliance staff, people who are looking after the trading uh, trading floor. 
Um, and eventually there's nobody left, right? So yeah. you've got these people who are controlling a very fast-moving market who have absolutely zero experience. And, mm. you know, it became a little bit like the Wild West. And um, <laughs> and with that volume, there was, you know, the, the number of errors increased quite dramatically. One of the girls who should have been nowhere near the phones picked up a phone, passed an order to, to, to one of the order fillers. It was completely the wrong way around. And because... There was so much more business going through rather than matching trades in a 30-minute period. It was taking 12, 13 hours to match mm. the trades, which is just completely wrong. Yeah. And, um, you know, the exchange should have just stopped trading for a period of time. But there was no nowhere for people to, um, to shift their Nikkei 225 exposure. Mm. And it was on one of those occasions that we realised there was a huge well, – it was a small position discrepancy, but it was – you know, we, we were significant to so the was wrong the side, side of it. So what sort of yeah. size, 20, 30 grand, like sort of Felix? Felix I think, uh, yeah, I think it was even 10 uh, at that particular time. And, you know, you know um, you know the way that you're supposed to escalate it up the level of command. I, I went into Simon Jones, who was the head of the operations department in Singapore, and explained it to him. He asked me to refer it to London, which for me was, a, a, a you know, a more scary step. Yeah. Um, and London wasn't going to be in for another five or six hours. And I took the chance, stupidly, that the market would get back to those sort of levels during the trading day and nobody would be any the wiser. And, you know, like as much as I spoke at the beginning about status and success, I also had a huge fear of failure. You yeah. know, I didn't, I didn't like, like I grabbed the opportunity of Singapore with both hands and, and didn't want to be failing that, that, that quickly into the journey, if you like. Yeah. So, so you, that, that loss presumably escalated a little bit and, and, and others were added to it. What did, what did you tap out at the first time around with that five eights account? What did you sort of get it, get the account up to in terms of losses? Uh, the first time around, I think the, the, the loss by May of 1993. So this started sort of around the June 92 period by May of 93, the loss was up to $20 million. I was using, I was selling options um, mm to hide the loss. So receiving the premium in, that was bringing the account balance down to zero. And as long as London would supply me with margin, I could do that pretty much for as long as I possibly could to try and resolve the situation. Which, so May, you, you cleared that one out and got it got it zeroed? You traded back yeah, and zeroed it out? Yeah, yeah. So May of 93, um, the loss, uh, the options expired almost perfectly um, and, and I had the opposite problem. I had a profit that I needed to get rid of, which is, <laughs> which is as you know, is a lot easier to do. You know, people will welcome that onto their trading, but nobody will take a loss off you, but mm-hmm. they'll all take a, they'll all take yeah. a profit off you. So how did that feel from, so being fairly young in your career, being a young man, and, and, and it is a brutal Darwinian environment, there's no question about it, and, and, and being sent to Singapore to conquer the world for bearings, you had to carry that for a, for, for a fairly lengthy period of time. What sort of psychological weight was kind of on your shoulders? And then I guess the point I really want to get into, Nick, is, is when you got that zeroed out and back to a clear or profitable account, how did that feel to you then psychologically having dodged the bullet and, and cleared that position out? Well, look, psychologically, you think you can start your life again. So it's, you, you know, that the, the, there's no better feeling. You've managed to achieve what you were trying to do, which was to just bring that account back down to zero and then and then start to do things correctly. But the problem is, is, 
you know, that the preceding six, seven months is all about bad behaviour and bad yeah. process. And kind of conditions you, know, so you can you can sort of push back against the the the, the, the structure, the process, the compliance regulations. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and even just the people who worked for me. So you know, I would have had six or seven different order fillers who were working for me on the trading floor. And they'd re- it, it was those guys sometimes who were making the errors, you know. Mm. One of them, might, you, you might ask somebody to buy 200 lots at the market on the open, and then you get the tickets back or the cards back with all of the orders on, you add it up and there's 210. Yeah. You know, so they were never admonished. They were never reprimanded. Um, and, and I suppose they started to get a little bit negligent within their own roles as well. So, you know, option expiry was on a Friday. That's the hallelujah, hallelujah moment when you think, you know, you can, you can start again. But then on Monday morning, the, the same guys are, are making the same mistakes and errors are going back into the 5.8s account. So, you so, know, I, I, I don't think I was um, mature enough from a business perspective to have that, you know, the manager-employee role and monish these people and, and draw a line under it over that weekend. It was just more of the same on a Monday. Well, I guess, you know, when you're, when you're shoulder to shoulder, literally, you know, in the heat of combat, in the pit, it, you know, there's an enormous camaraderie, which is extraordinarily difficult to explain for people that haven't been in that situation, um, that, that bonds people. How would you describe the sort of compliance regime and, and, and risk management structures at bearings at that point in time, just out of interest? I mean, the answer is non-existent. Um, right. You know, Bearings was all, uh, I'd worked for Bearings at that stage by um, for a couple of years and I'd, I'd lived in Hong Kong and worked in Hong Kong with Bearings. I'd lived and worked in Indonesia as well, in Jakarta. And it was always trying to solve problems. Yeah. So it was always, Bearings was always about doing the business uh, quick before everybody else and the infrastructure, the controls, the processes, um, would always come along later. And um, Singapore wasn't quite that sort of episode, but there were so many different episodes of, of things going wrong because the compliance, the risk management around the type of business that they were doing was just slow. So if it, like, you, just, go back, you, you go back to that era, you go back to that era. I mean, you know, derivatives trading in, in, in a retail context was a relatively new thing in, in that time frame in the early nineties. Yeah, you didn't have necessarily retail punters having a crack at it. And with an institution, and I've worked for a, a fairly blue blooded firm in, in my time, the recruitment process there seems to be very different. It's very old school tie and, and, and a lot of nepotism as opposed to necessarily stronger skill sets like you saw, for example, with some of the American and European banks. Would that would that be a fair comment? Yeah, look, I, I worked for Morgan Stanley prior to mm-hmm. working for Bearings. And, yeah. You know, they're, they're chalk and cheese. Um, yeah. You know, like at Bearings more often than not, I, I think one of the guys who, who eventually um, was put in place as, a, as one of the senior risk managers was a, was a captain in the army. Mm. And I, I'm not discrediting the army and their roles coming into um in, in, into the business at all but you know his experience of risk management or working in the financial services industry yeah. was zero mm-hmm. um but you know it was that sort of um you know it was that sort of approach to things and one of the points you made earlier just just in relation to camaraderie you know and looking after people that was you know that was one of my biggest failings and i, I think it comes from my working class heritage um, where you are very loyal to people. So, yeah. you know, like if an order, if an order, and this is a genuine story, 
one of the order fillers uh, who worked for me in Singapore, he was going through a bit of a messy divorce. He came and lived at my house with me and his wife, uh, with me and my wife, you know. So it was just all too close. And there, yeah. there was never really that manager yeah. employee type of relationship. Very, very tough position to be in. And, and, and particularly when in, in your heart and mind, you're actually coming from a good place to, to try and do stuff. So what happened next? How, how did you become the notorious rogue trader uh, that your reputation carries now? You got the errors account zeroed out back on the straight and narrow for a period of time. And then, then where did it go from there? Well, I think it was it was only it was only back on the straight and narrow for that weekend, and there was no trading that <laughs> weekend, to be honest with you. So on the on Monday morning, the errors would have started again, and, and it was the same sort of stuff. So again, it starts small, it starts um, starts quite low, and then you know I'm doing a bit of arbitrage trading at that time, looking at some of the um, some of the rollovers that needed to be done done for the arbitrage desk in Tokyo. That's adding to the adding to some of the mistakes. I'm legging into and out of those, trying to get the best prices possible, taking on uh, definitely taking on more risk than I was uh, allowed to during that period. But you know, and, and, and as much as the focus was trying to get everything back to zero um, again, you know, I think what happened was that some of that early success in, in being able to resolve the situation uh, was exceptionally damaging going forward because you start to believe that you're going to be able to do it. And I think, you know, when you look at things in in, in the modern era or, you know, in, in, in today's type of environment for traders, you know, one of the worst things for them is a, is a bit of success getting out of a dangerous situation because... Absolutely, that reinforcement of bad behaviour and, and you're yeah. both again. Mm. Yeah, you think you can do it again, and, and more often than not, you can't. The market might let you away with something once, rarely lets you away with it twice. You know, it's a very efficient vehicle, and you know, ultimately, it, it, it ends up uh, costing you. So, giving us an idea of scale, obviously, the Kobe earthquake comes along and, and, and smashes yeah. literally the Japan and the market. At, at that point in time, your ballpark, what sort of what sort of size? unauthorized position were you carrying roughly? Well, look, it was all unauthorized. So, um, I, and, and I can only defer to numbers that I see uh, in the book, but the, the position was huge. I mean, I think the the impact of Kobe, uh, I mean, Kobe did obviously uh, cause the markets to drop a little bit more. And there were, you know, there were a lot of knockout puts that were around at the time that would put extra pressure on the market as it went through different strike prices. But um for me, the position was just too big by then. Um, you look at the market. I had, I think I had something. I was short something like a hundred thousand options. Oh, okay. So, um, so, so just for the benefit of of people that are less across market, so a short position uh, or, or short options, you're basically expecting the market to 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 move to move higher, not lower. And then the earthquake comes along and 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 puts that argument on its head, and the market drops, which is not what. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, no. I, I mean, I was actually short straddles, so um, so so I short the, the the put and the call. Yeah. Um, but because of the the significant move, um, it, it was skewing it very. Um, you know, one wasn't offsetting the other; it was skewing it massively in the opposite direction. But the problem, as well, and and probably the bigger problem was that I was short. Or sorry, I was long something like sixty thousand futures contracts as well. So this was a this yeah. this this was a huge position, right? Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, so, so 
face value of a Nikkei future would have been at that time, I'm guessing, what, 150, 160 grand face value times 60,000 contracts? Something like that, yeah. No, oh, it's that's, a huge that's, bunch. That's, that's like over a billion in terms of face value. So that's that's, that's literally, you know, no, no pun intended, but I guess that, that size position is, is, is big enough to be a problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the size of the position, and, and then you look at the market, how much you can unwind in the market. Hmm. And you walk into the options pit and you'll, you know, there were there were three or four reasonably small option market makers. You ask for a quote, they're going to skew it because they're the up, they're the other side of the trade. Um, hmm. And, you know, you look for quantity and there was 20 and, and I needed to do 100,000 of them to get out of a position. <laughs> so, you know, you've got, there was, there was no liquidity pool to play into. Um, I guess, I guess you were the market. I did, and I think it was a lot of the market in the futures contract as well. You know, I, 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 I mean, I think I overstate this when I'm talking at dinners, but you know, I was probably something like thirty-five percent of the volume on a daily basis. Um, you know, chopping and changing, but not changing the overall picture. I mean, I think one of the things, and again, we we, we could talk about this in a few minutes. You know, once you get yourself into a bad position. You know, I used to think very early on, you know, you you might go in and look at your position and work out how you could turn it around. You know, at a point, and it was quite early on, my position was too big to flip. Hmm. You know, I, I was long and I had to stay long in the hope that the market was going to recover. And, and I'm buying into a, a falling market. And in, in terms of the knife catching that I was doing during that period, it, it was extreme. Hmm. I think one of the, the really interesting things to come out of that, so earthquake happens, there's no ability to meet any kind of margin call around that. I think from memory, the options on the Nikkei are cash settled to expiry as well. So you get the coin up front, but you've got to pay the adjustment on expiry. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's a there's a looming wall of, of, of pain coming there too. So what happened then? Um, I ran away. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I left Singapore on the 23rd of February, 1995, N not necessarily because the pressure was getting too much. I, I mean, obviously, London was struggling with margin, um, but up until that point, they were always able to um, send money over. Capital and, base... And still uh, sending margin to you to manage the position on the basis that th this is short-term, you're going to be getting it back, it's just to cover client positions or, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's a bit like the Fed and the talk of transitory inflation recently. I, I don't know how long something can be transitory, and I, although the Fed obviously think it's longer than me, but, um, you know, short term, I mean, the flow of money was always to me in Singapore. And just to put it into some context, uh, the capital base of bearings at that time was about £250 million. By the end of 1994, I had 600 million pound with me in uh, financing my illegal position. So more than, you know, more than two or close to two and a half times capital base of the bank. Legal limit you could lend to subsidiary was 10% of the bank's capital. Um, so 25 million uh, pounds. So I'm 13, 14 times in breach of that limit. The bank are obviously in breach of that limit. They're reporting that. To, um, to their regulators as well. So the bank was borrowing money. 
you know, and they're borrowing it from Barclays, they're borrowing it from Citibank. They eventually say, we're not lending you any more money. They go to the stock market, they issue a bond for a hundred million pound. And this is all to finance what you described as a short-term situation. And, you know, it, like we would ask for London, uh, we would ask London for money probably three days out of five, maybe four days out of five. Um, you know, it might be a hundred million Monday, 50 million Tuesday, another hundred million Wednesday, um, you know, maybe 25 million on Thursday, and then we'll give them 5 million back on Friday. So it's skewed very much in terms of the flow of funds coming to Singapore. And, you know, it's nonsensical. Like you and I both know, right? If you if you trade futures and options, it's a cash-rich business. You take more margin from your customer than you pay to the exchange, and you, you keep the difference on account. Um, so there is no reason for me to have one penny in additional margin, yet by uh, the end of 1994, I had £600 million that um, you really cannot justify. And mm. the reasons that I would give would be completely nonsensical. Um, but I think, you know, it fed into um, it fed into maybe a blue-blooded lack of knowledge or lack of real understanding within the organisation that they didn't want to highlight, that they really didn't know what was going on and it yeah. was easier to pay the money across than than really get down into the detail and say, no, look, I need to understand this a bit more or I, or, or I really don't understand. And, and, and I think that's what happened over that period. I mean, nobody, you know, nobody ever challenged me. Um, and, you know, the last... I suppose nobody did a position check. It was, you know, like if you. That's, that's unbelievable because normally it's a, a twice a day process. Um, yeah, at, at least, you know, and coming from Morgan Stanley, if your positions didn't agree, you didn't trade. It was, you know, it's a simple, it's a simple fact. My, my mm. positions did not agree for nearly three years, but nobody did the reconciliation. And the first time anybody did the reconciliation was the 23rd of February, 1995. So it wasn't a case of, you know, there's no more margin or the market's doing this, that, or the other. It was simply presented with a very simple position check because we only had two accounts, right? We had a London account, a Tokyo account. You add the two together, you compare it to the Singapore International Monetary Exchange. There is, as we've just discussed, a hundred thousands worth of an options discrepancy. There's a 60,000 futures contract uh, discrepancy and, and there's no way to answer. Again, this is, this what, is the quantity of contracts. It's not the dollars. It's the quantity of contracts, which is exactly, just, yeah. just vast. I mean, it's, it's insane. Something that's really interesting. And I mean, so, so you mentioned you fled Singapore, um, mm. you, you, you did the bank, you ended up, I think getting arrested in Frankfurt. Is that right? I did. Yeah. I went, I flew to Kuala Lumpur at first, spent a bit of time in Kota Kinabalu, just, really trying to understand, like I never expected the bank to collapse, right? I didn't know what the capital mm. base of the bank was. I was just trying to do a job, trying to extract myself from a bad situation. And if I asked for 600 million um, and they kept giving it, I didn't know what the limit to that was. So I, obviously I knew that there was going to be a significant loss. Mm. I didn't expect it to cause the collapse of the bank. Um, and, and I guess ultimately... 
I guess it's like, you know, on any trading floor, if you've revealed your hand and you're in a bit of pain, it's pretty Darwinian place. So you can expect just about every other trader there to take their fair share of flesh off the carcass. So I'm guessing when, when, when you left Singapore, uh, for, for, for Indonesia and then onto, onto Frankfurt, they didn't get onto, well, not that you could unwind that position of that size, I suppose, but they didn't get onto trying to proactively manage it. They were just like, geez, what have we got here? And, and, and sort of frozen. Yeah, no, I think Goldman Sachs were put in charge of the unwind and they did rather well out of it. I think there was, I think just looking through the Board of Banking Supervision uh, report um, into the collapse of the bank from the point that I fled Singapore until um, and, uh, until the positions were all resolved, I think there was something like 90 million of a, of a foreign exchange discrepancy. On top of however poorly they unwound uh, the contracts onto their own books. Mm. So arrested in uh, Frankfurt, you had a bit of time there before yep. you were deported to to Singapore to to, to face charges and, and and do your time, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, I was in Germany for about um, about eight and a half nine months before I went back to Singapore. So, out of all of this, you know, a lot of people that. Would be listening to this would be oh you know he did the wrong thing got arrested at his time that's how it should be one of the things that i'd like to say that personally i'd admire you for is we've talked about the major deficiencies in the compliance and supervision regime at bearings but i don't think there's anything i've seen and certainly not through our, our conversation today nick where you've ever done anything other than own the situation 100 you haven't tried to lay off onto anyone and go, oh, they should have done this or that you've owned it from 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 go to woe so to speak and even though it's a murky story, I think there's also a significant and recognisable level of integrity that I'd, I'd just like to mention in there. Oh, well, look, I, I, I thank you for saying that. It's not something I necessarily, um, it's not something I necessarily promote myself. I think, you know, I spent a lot of time in prison in Singapore, um, more so than during my time in Germany. And you, you kind of try to rationalize things and you need to be fully accountable. You need to accept fully the guilt in order to be able to move on. You know, there's no point, um, you know, coming up with a load of fake stories about why you did stuff and, mm. and why certain things happened. And, you know, the blame game is, is definitely not the approach that I took. So what was it? I mean, did, 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 you, and again, to be really clear for everybody listening to this, financially, there was no, nothing in it for you. There was no big, oh, I've just managed to scoop off 20 mil to my Swiss bank account kind of thing. So there was no financial gain. What was what was the what was the driver behind it? I mean, I don't know. It may ego, trader confidence, or, or or that desire to try and turn it around, recognition. What what was the driver? Do you think when you sort of look back and unpack, you know, that sort of three year period of your life? Well, look, I think status has a big part to play within it. I, you know, I did a book with a psychologist a few years ago, um, and he he really focuses in on the status. For me, it was. You know, my the, the way that I look at it was that I had a huge need for success. But why, you know, why didn't I put my hand up and say things were going wrong? For me, the, the reason is I, I just could not enunciate my own failure. And I, I didn't, like, if you go back throughout this whole period, and as, as you described it, it's definitely murky. But the, um, you know, like, I didn't tell anybody about what was going on. You know, because it highlighted my own failure. And that was the one thing that I really couldn't come to terms with. And so, you know, if you unravel the whole package and 
the whole rebound or recovery from the situation, you know, you, you have to highlight those behaviours that got you in so much trouble. Trouble. So failure, you know, taking a loss, understanding a loss, things like that are things that you, you know, you have to come to terms with and uh, and, and understand the processes or the behaviours that got you into those difficult situation so for me it's all about accountability responsibility accepting the blame because the blame is all mine right you, the, the, there's no point me trying to push that out onto other people mm. what, what did everybody do a, a an a1 job during that time at bearings absolutely not but you know they can answer their own shortgivings for themselves you know it wasn't them that um um uh, forced me to take every single trade. It was me, you know. So I, it, it's quite right that I went to, to to jail for my actions during that period. Can, can, can I ask you something around that? Because, you know, yeah. your father's a class three working class boy who, no pun intended, you know, the boy did good kind of thing, got into the city, very heavily mm. recognised job, running the show for bearings in, in Asia, the rising star, the big revenue line driver and so on. I think... Sometimes that driver, and I mean, I'm from a working class background too, and you you wonder sometimes the driver you have is to show your family that you're married to something, or, or maybe maybe that's not right, maybe that's not the ego thing, but that recognition of giving your, your family something they can be proud of is, I, I found personally, certainly something that's driven me through some tough decision-making, not on this scale, I might add, but some difficult decision-making that you push forward because that, 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 that kind of pressure to show that you've made it is a huge, huge thing lurking in the background and, and perhaps could cloud your decisions. Is that something that, that would sort of be a similar story for yourself? Yeah, I, th- I, I mean, I think, you know, for me growing up, it was always about, you know, and, and we lived on a council estate. It was, it was a very working class uh, background. You know, there wasn't a great deal of money around. We always had everything that we needed and wanted, um, but, you know, it was a struggle to get there. So, you know, for me, it was always, you know, my driver would have been, um, you know, achieving more. And this this would have been something that was instilled in me by my mother, you know, achieving a bit more than they had. And, you know, that that working class idea that you're going to you're going to live a middle class life as you uh, as you grow up and aspire um, in, in, in that direction, I think. As much as that was the focus and what uh, and what drove me in terms of uh, achieving more within the industry, I think you also have to, you know, basic honesty and integrity were important within that as well. And I kind of lost sight of that yeah. um, for a period of time. But the the real restrictor of, of of owning up to what was going on was not being able to highlight that failure. And yeah. you know, I often say that as much as I was postponing the realization of the losses through, throughout that near three year period, I was also postponing the realization of my own failure. So every time I'd roll those options from November to December or January to yeah. February, it was another 30 days where I didn't have to say, look, yeah. I'm messing up here. And yeah, that, that was rolling, rolling is a is a terrible game of pass the parcel. You know, it's coming at some point, and and I guess yeah. you just want to try and push it along the line, you know, as, as far as you can. And yeah, you know, we see clients that get into the the roll dance where you know you can be right or you can be rich. They're not the same thing. And sometimes you just got to cop it early. I guess just like stop losses, you know, you can't have a stop loss on a billion dollar position in an illiquid market. So that wasn't something that was available to your position. But yeah, with losses, normally the first cut's always the cheapest. Get it done. Get it out and that cathartic release of 
that bad position is closed. I don't have to do the roll dance anymore. It's all over. I can kind of move forward. Is a is it comes as a relief, even though it's painful at the time. Yeah, hundred percent. It's um, you know, like the sooner I'd act, uh, like I often say to say to people, you know, and I think that's why things like this and and and, and your own business and education uh, services where people can ask for help and advice. You know, I think, you know, if I look back over that whole period of my time at Behrens in Singapore, I was surrounded by people that could have helped me and could have pointed me in the right direction. Mm. And, and we don't know, nobody knows everything all of the time. And, you know, at 25, I saw asking for help as a sign of weakness. I should have seen it as a sign of trying to do things correctly. Yeah. Um, but there are processes, there's structures. I think everybody... You know, like when I worked at Morgan Stanley and when I when I worked at Bearings, probably more significantly, everything was about how we could bypass some of the structure and and some of the rules, and and that really came home to roost. I think when you you look at the story of Bearings. So, if you had your time over again, would you have done things differently? Um, yeah, I'd like to think that I had more support. Um, you know, that I'd uh, that I was. You know, I was very, um, I would have said that I was very immature um, from a business perspective uh, and from a management perspective during that particular um, time. So, you know, like I love being challenged and I think that's what the industry does. It, it challenges all of the time, but you need that economic and business maturity to be able to deal with uh, with difficult situations so you know I think that comes through support and I think the education the empowerment you get from um, some of the people that are there now to give that advice um, you know like stop losses and uh, and things like that and RRR and you know whether you believe them or you don't believe them, and everybody everybody will have a different opinion uh, uh, in in that regard. You know there are things that are there um, within the markets that can keep you safe. And yeah. you know I didn't. I think you know you know acting early. I think is a key part within that. And you know I certainly didn't. And um, you know for for that reason paid the consequences that I did. That ultimately serve a six and a half year prison sentence in Singapore. Mm. So you trade now. I guess it's one of those things. Is 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 when it's in your blood, it's in your blood. You can't not. I, I don't know if you if you have the same challenge. You sort of see the news and you think, okay, join the dots. There's a trade there, and off you go to the screen kind of thing. So you, you, you do a bit in the market now again. Um, are you a big indicator user, or do you sort of read the price action, sort of a la being on the floor, albeit through the screen? Um, I, I, I try to, <laughs> and try is the operative word here. Um, I, I, I try to make it as close to the trading floor as I can. So, you know, if I look at, and, and obviously I'm 55 years old these days, so I don't want to be sat in front of a screen um, for, for for 12 hours trying to work for that uh, or trying to look for that perfect alignment of various different indicators. So I trade around the opening bell. Yeah. And, and, and the reason why I do that is, um, so there's two opening bells during my time zone. So you've got the European open and then the open in New York. Um, I try. I trade fairly quick um, and and quite frequently ar around that one hour period. There's a bit of movement. Um, there's a, you're going to get some action, hey? Yeah, yeah. You you're guaranteed movement number one, right? So that's what you need to make money. Um, so I, I focus in on those periods. 
you get a fair bit of spoofing pre-bell. I know it's mm. illegal these days, but um, there's nothing on the screens to suggest that it's um, that people aren't doing it. And and you get a few programs triggering, I think, at the same times of the day. So I try to take advantage of those. It doesn't always work out, but I think it's it's closer in that one hour period pre-market. And, and in the 30 minutes of the market being open, I think it's closer to a pit environment um, than anything else I've seen. I like to be out of the market fairly quick after three o'clock in the afternoon, yep. uh, UK time, the big American banks take control. I, I always, uh, and I always try to explain to people that when I used to, or when friends used to stand on life, or when I used to stand in the Singapore International Monetary Exchange pits all those years ago, you know, if JP Morgan or one of the big American players was coming in, it, it, you know, you're best to take your bid and offer out of the market yeah. um, because they're going to move it, right? Yeah. And they're, they're, their orders are big enough to move the market and then it will settle down afterwards and you can try to trade from that particular point. So I don't trade around numbers. I do a little bit of technical analysis um, early in the mornings, um, nothing too spectacular, Try to keep it simple. I mean, if you, I, I've, I've never tried to do it, but if you count up the number um, of forms of technical analysis that there are, um, it probably numbers 50 or 60. It may even be even higher. Mm. And I think it's confusing. Um, so, you know, I think you've got to settle on things that work for you. Um, well, price is the ultimate thing that works because that's what you're trading, right? And you can lose it, yeah. lose it, lose it in indicators very, very easily. But, I'm, I'm, I'm also happy. I'm also happy to be opinionated. So you know, like I'll, I'll, I'll make a decision about. Like I have nobody else to blame, right? So if I'm long and I'm wrong, I'm wrong, right? And yeah. if I'm short and I get caught, I get caught. So yeah, you know, and, and those things are difficult for people to understand. Um, yeah. You know, nobody enters a trade expecting to lose money, but more than fifty percent of us do, mm. right? So. There's a lot of learning for a lot of people in that regard. You, you stop losses now? When, when do you put them on, on the entry, or once you've got set and it's kind of moved a little bit? You don't want the honest answer. Brutally <laughs> honest, my friend. Brutally honest. Give it to me next day. No, I don't. I don't. Maybe never give us what you've got. No, I, I don't put them on. I, I don't put them on immediately. And the reason being is the trades are usually quite short term. I'm looking right. to take. I trade in a little bit more size than maybe a. a uh, maybe then a number of retail traders would do, but I'm only looking for 20, 25 pips out of the DAX, out of the Dow. You know, if I catch a move, I catch a move. So the stock does go in, but it goes in slightly after the um, after the trade. It's more about speed for me. Gotcha. And just catch, just catching that bit of price action. So, I, and, and this is just being honest, you know, if you're, well, uh, unless you've got it. That's what we're at. Yeah. You know, you've got, you've got yeah. to give it room to breathe. You can't choke it by, you, you can't, pick apples hugging the trunk you've got to get out on the branch and this risk associated with that if you if you want the good fruit yeah no agreed and and it is about speed for me around those particular times i mean you know the dow can be quite forgiving in the first three or four minutes of trading unless it's really caught a trend um, mm. so you, you you get a bit of two-way price action in that period so i think you have a bit bit of time uh, in in order to be able to put your stop on and it is the indices that i trade you know i don't trade currencies i, I trade a bit of gold um from time to time um Any crypto in there 
no, don't understand it. Uh, like, uh, you know, like people, people have brought me on to talk about crypto on various shows over the years. And, you know, my advice has always been, you know, if you don't understand it, don't touch it, which has, has, has borne some fruit over the last six months or so. As, Absolutely. As Bitcoin has gone from 69 down. Uh, so I think it, it touched 17 and a half at the weekend. And yeah, yeah it's, I, I, the, the real reason why I never got involved with crypto in the beginning was was a technical reason. The spreads were just too wide. You know, I, I uh, you know, you want something that's that, that's fairly tight and is, is liquid. And I don't think Bitcoin for me in the early days was was that. So, in terms of advice, then obviously not in the crypto space. You're trading. You're reading price action. You like dynamic markets. And I think that just that comment in itself. For traders that are new into markets, finding out your groove, where your mojo is, what you enjoy doing, where you have a skill set and where you can enjoy some success is the place to focus on and not trying to change who you are and and, and you, you you know and, and learn a raft of new tricks where you come in at ground level as an amateur again. What advice would you give for someone, um, an aspiring trader, someone that's new to markets, give the, the, the Nick Leeson three, five year, three to five points of these are good takeaways for someone that's starting out in the journey based on what's been an incredibly colourful 30 plus year career that you've had? Uh, well, I, I mean, I think you can summarize it probably down to one, to be honest with you, Andrew. I, I, look, risk management is the key. Yep. Um, you know, if you're it, like everybody wants to make money and, and to make a profit, but you also have to be able to manage a bad position. Um, so as soon as you're in that bad position, you know, where does your stop go? I agree with you. You, you. you know, you still want to give it some time to breathe, but there has to be a point. Uh, of which you're going to activate that stop. Um, some of us can pull the trigger. Uh, some of us can't, and, and they need that structure of the stop being very rigid within that. Yeah. Um, and, and But risk management is, is the key part, you know, whether you're in a winning position or a losing position, um, managing that loss um, is very, very difficult. And, and, you know, I think sometimes the, the the worst thing that can happen to people is they have a bit of success um, too soon. Maybe get out of that one of those um, you get out of a um, losing position um, easily, and, and and they start to believe that they can do it again. Um, so processes, structure, being disciplined, um, and, and and always being very very conscious that you have tight risk management is are probably the keys and it's tough, right? Yeah. Um, you know, like every time I trade after three o'clock in the afternoon, I, 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 I just sit there looking at um, the, the, the losses racking up. So, you know, work out when are the best times of, you, of the day for you to trade with you. And, and there are so many, you know, there's so many different um, packages that, 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 that can give you that, that information these days. And mm. for me, it's the opening bell. And, and I think you, you know, you do, you're guaranteed a movement, which is what everybody's looking for. Um, and, and, you know, don't force trades. Don't think that you've got to be trading just because you sat in front of the screen. I think a lot of trading goes on through some of that boredom that people experience when they're waiting for stuff to happen and, yeah. and, and forcing trades into, into the market. Yeah. Great advice. And, you know, it, trading is like learning to swim. You've got to get in the pool, you've got to get wet and you got to take a bit of water in the lungs to see, to see what that feels like. And hopefully you learn that lesson early on 
and it's a it's a temporary setback as to something that sees you floating face down that's for sure look nick it's been absolutely fantastic to go down memory lane initially but just to see where you're at and what you're doing and and i think that lesson of risk management i mean i guess it's it, it's something that's been a major theme through your career and, and story through life both in terms of not using it and obviously then using it uh, and i think if there's one takeaway point for our clients to make sure that they bolt in uh, and, and strap it on is to is to have that risk under control so i'd like to thank you it's been great having you on the show it's great to see where you're at in life and and, and as i say to chew the fat about the days of old and what the future has in store so thank you so much for sharing your time with us it's great thank you very much for having me there you have it guys no question about it that is some story make sure you give us a review and a rating so we can help more people get this information and we'll look forward to hosting you next week